Man, good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is November the 2nd, 306th day of the year. 59 days remain to the year is over with. It's also, according to my calendar, the Day of the Dead which I actually thought was on November 1st. And somebody asked me um, earlier, what's the Day of the Dead celebrated for? And it's one of Mexico's great visual spectacles and a celebration of culture and syncretism. Its fundamental purpose was to remember those who died so their souls didn't disappear forever. And... um, The Day of the Dead actually starts on November 1st and ends on November 2nd. And during those days, it's believed the spirits of the dead return home to spend time with their families. And it's recognized by UNESCO. It's got a rich history. There's altars. Skulls have literary roots. Uh, you can eat food of the dead. And everybody wears a costume. Uh, Unlike the ghoulish skulls and skeletons associated with Halloween, the uh, brightly colored skulls associated with the Day of the Dead represent the the departed souls in the circle of life. Uh, Supposedly a celebration of their lives. Folks in Mexico don't think of the dead like they're gone forever. Uh, They're always going to be with us. Uh, let's see. Oops. Alrighty. Holidays and national days. Uh, national Deviled Egg Day. National Men Make Dinner Day. Can't get behind that one. All Souls Day. It's a centuries-old tradition in Western Christianity. It's also All Souls Day in Brazil. And it's the arrival of indentured laborers in the Mauritius. Uh, they did play a huge contribution to the city's de- to the country's development. Be the Impact Day, Broadcast Traffic Professionals Day, Dynamic Harmlessness Day, Feast of Saint Giusto. Join the people of Tristi in celebrating an icon of the Christian faith. International Day to end impunity for crimes against journalists. International Stout Day. Um, for those who are not familiar with stout, it's a type of beer. Um, just look for Circles Day. National Cashback Day. Um, National Ohio Day. And it's Plan Your Epitaph Day. Project Management Day. Thanksgiving Liberia, um, Traffic Directors Day, and World Ballet Day. Alrighty. Um, in the year 619 A.D., a of the Western Turkic Khaganate is assassinated in a Chinese palace by Eastern Turkic rivals after the approval of Tang Emperor Gaozu, 
1410, the Peace of Bicetri suspends hostilities in the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War. 1675, Plymouth Colony Governor Josiah Winslow leads a colonial militia against the Narragansett during King Philip's War. <coughs> War. 1795, the French Directory, a five-man revolutionary uh, government, is created. 1868, um, New Zealand officially adopts the standard time to be observed nationally. 1882, the Great Fire destroys a large part of Olu's city center in Olu province in Finland. 1889, North Dakota and South Dakota admitted as the 39th and 40th U.S. states. 1899, the Boers begin their 118-day siege of British-held Ladysmith during the Second Boer War. 1912, Bulgaria defeats the Ottoman Empire in the Battle of Lule Borgas, uh, the bloodiest battle of the First Balkan War, which opens her way up to Constantinople. 1914, World War I, Russian Empire declares war on the Ottoman Empire, and the Dardanelles is subsequently closed. 1917, the Balfour Declaration proclaims British support for the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. With the clear understanding, nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities. So it was a British decision that Israel is where it's at. Also in 1917, Military Revolutionary Committee of the Petrograd Soviet, in charge of preparation and carrying out the Russian Revolution, holds its first meeting. 1920 in the U.S., KDKA of Pittsburgh starts broadcasting as the first commercial radio station. And that first broadcast is a result of the 1920 United States presidential election. 1936, the BBC television service, the world's first regular high definition, which at that point in time was defined as at least 200 lines service begins, renamed BBC One in 1964. That channel still runs to this day. 1940, World War II, first day of um, battle of uh, Elia Kalamas between the Greeks and the Italians. 1947, California designer Howard Hughes performs the maiden and only flight of the huge H-4 Hercules, also known as the Spruce Goose. It was the largest fixed-wing aircraft ever built until scale composites rolled out their... Uh, Shredder launch in May of 2017. 1949, the Dutch-Indonesian uh, Roundtable Conference ends with the Netherlands agreeing to transfer sovereignty of the Dutch East Indies to the United States of Indonesia. 1951, Canada and the Korean War. The platoon of the Royal Canadian Regiment defends a vital area against a full battalion of Chinese troops in the Battle of Songok Spur. That engagement lasted the early hours of the next day. 1956, Hungarian Revolution. Nikita Khrushchev meets with the leaders of other communist countries to seek their advice on the situation in Hungary, selecting Janos Kadar as the country's next leader on the advice of Joseph Broz Tito. 1956, Suez Crisis. Israel occupies the Gaza Strip. 1959, quiz show scandals. 21 game show contestant Dr. Charles Van Doren admits to a congressional committee that uh, 
He'd been given questions and answers in advance. Is nothing sacred? 1959, the first section of the M1 motorway, the first interurban motorway in the UK, is open between the present junctions 5 and 18 along the M10 motorway and the M45 motorway. 1960, Penguin Books is found not guilty of obscenity in the trial of R versus Penguin Brooks Limited, also called the Lady Chatterley's Lover case. It was a risque book, but by today's standards, nothing. 1963, South Vietnamese leader Nguyen Dinh Diem is assassinated following a military coup. 1964, King Saud of Saudi Arabia is deposed by a family coup and replaced with his half-brother Faisal. 1965, Norman Morrison, a 31-year-old Quaker, sets himself on fire in front of the river entrance to the Pentagon to protest the use of napalm in the Vietnam War. Now, folks, please, that's got to be one of the stupidest things anybody's ever done. Because, keep in mind, that was a military decision. And some yo-yo burning himself up is not going to change the military decision. 1966. Um, yeah, it was November 2nd, 1965. Morrison doused himself in kerosene and set himself on fire below the office of Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. Um, this action was taken after Thich Quang Duc and other Buddhist monks who burned themselves to death to protest the repression committed by the South Vietnamese government of Catholic President Nguyen Dinh Diem. The, um, you know, people do these grand gestures and think it's going to make a difference. It doesn't. 1966, the Cuban Adjustment Act comes into force, allowing 123,000 Cubans the opportunity to apply for permanent residence in the U.S. 1967, Vietnam War. U.S. President Lyndon, I'm going to be King Johnson, and the wise men conclude the American people should be given more optimistic reports on the progress of the war. In other words, lie. 1982, Channel 4 starts broadcasting. And that's a British free-to-air public broadcast television channel owned and operated by the state-owned Channel 4 Television Corporation. It's publicly owned, but unlike the BBC, it gets no public funding and is funded entirely by its own commercial activities, which includes publicity. It began its transmission in 1982 and was established to provide a fourth television service in the U.K. Uh, at the time, the only other channels were license-funded BBC One and BBC Two and a single commercial broadcasting network, ITV. Um, originally, it was a subsidiary of the Independent Broadcasting Authority, or the IBA. It's now owned and operated by Channel 4 Television Corporation. Well, it's interesting to note how much control the government has over everything. 1983, President Ronald Reagan signs a bill creating Martin Luther King Jr. Day. 1984, as a federal holiday, no less. 1984, capital punishment. Velma Barfield becomes the first woman executed in the U.S. since 1962. And what does she do, you may ask? 
She was an American serial killer, convicted of one murder, but who eventually confessed to six murders in total. Uh, she was also the first woman to be executed by lethal injection. She was 52 years old at the time of her execution. Came from North Carolina, but raised near uh, Fayetteville. Her father reportedly was physically abusive, and her mother, Lillian Bullard, didn't intervene. She escaped by marrying uh, Thomas Burke in 1949. They had two children who were reportedly happy till Barfield had a hysterectomy and developed back pain. And those events caused a behavioral change and eventual drug addiction. Well, things went downhill from there. 1986. Um, Lebanon hostage crisis. U.S. hostage David Jacobson is released in Beirut after 17 months in captivity. 1988, the Mars Worm, the first Internet-distributed computer worm to gain significant mainstream media attention, is launched from MIT. 1988, LOT Polish Airlines Flight 703 crashes in Bielobrzegi, uh, um, in Poland. Kills one person and injures several more. 1990, British satellite television and Sky TV uh, PLC merged to form uh, B Sky B as a result of massive losses. 1997, Tropical Storm Linda makes landfall in the Mekong Delta in Vietnam, caused more than 3,000 deaths. 1999, Honolulu shootings. In the worst mass murder in the history of Hawaii, a gunman shoots eight people at his workplace, killing seven. Year 2000, Expedition 1 arrived at the International Space Station for the first long-duration stay on board. From uh, that day to present, a continuous human presence in, a spa in space on the station remains uninterrupted. 2008, Lewis Hamilton secured his maiden Formula 1 Drivers Championship uh, title by one point ahead of Felipe Massa at the Brazilian Grand Prix after a pass for fifth place against the Toyota of Timo Glock in the final lap of the race. 2016, the Chicago Cubs defeat the Cleveland Indians in the World Series, ending the longest Major League Baseball championship drought in 108 years. 2022, a peace agreement signed between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, ending the Tigray War. Well, usually these liberation fronts are created because of um, either grave injustice by the predominant party or massive ego of the leaders. You don't know which. Well, we've been talking about... Um, Ghosts and haunted houses and you know, um, we're gonna talk about Virginia City and Nevada City and Montana. You know, Minnesota businessman named Charles Bove was fascinated with the history of the two towns. He restored 12 structures in Nevada City, expanding it by saving buildings from around the state and relocating them. 
There's a train today that runs between Virginia City and Nevada City. It was May 26, 1863. A group of six prospectors in southwestern Montana found one of the richest gold deposits in North America history on the banks of a narrow creek. Within a few weeks, nearly a dozen mining camps had sprung up along the 14 miles of Alder Gulch. Within a year, they were home to some 10,000 fortune hunters. Richest of the camps became Virginia City, and by 1865, the town was so influential it was made the capital of the new Montana Territory. Virginia City's shanties and tents were soon replaced by permanent buildings and became home to Montana's first newspaper, public school, and telegraph. Well, of the other camps along that creek, Nevada City, about a mile and a half to the northwest, was the most prominent. It actually had 2,000 citizens. At the height of the Alder Gulch, uh, Gulch Gold Rush, Virginia City and Nevada City were the region's centers of commerce. Well, prospectors weren't the only ones looking to strike it rich. Virginia City was a lawless and violent place in its early years. Outlaws known as road agents would rob and murder travelers along the gulches, trails, and roads, and they were responsible for up to 100 deaths in 1863 and 1864. The situation became so dire that a vigilante committee was established to deal with the problem. Montana vigilantes hung more than a dozen road agents in response, including Henry Plummer, the alleged leader of the gang, as well as the sheriff of the nearby town of Bannock. The graves of a plumber and four of his uh, fellow road agents were Virginia City's Boot Hill Cemetery. Well, nevertheless, the mining town's days were numbered. Within a few years of its founding, the amount of gold extracted from the gulch diminished and the population of Virginia City began to decline. By 1880, only 624 people lived there, and by 1930, the population dwindled to 242. Well, in the next decade, a wealthy Minnesota businessman and rancher and politician named Charles Beauvais, who was fascinated by the town's history and Victorian architecture, began preserving and restoring many of the buildings. Largely due to his efforts, more than 200 structures have been preserved for tourists. And he was enjoying his gold rush. Well, in Alabama, we've got an interesting ghost town that I've heard of growing up called... Cahaba is the first capital of the state, established in 1819 at the confluence of the Alabama and Cahaba River, built on the ruins of an even older ghost town, a 16th century Native American settlement. And there are plans for a social and commercial center. And as I say, there were plans, but they were never acted on, to build a state house atop the remains of the previous village's old earthworks. Well, Cahaba was a major distribution point for cotton grown in the area to be shipped down the Alabama River to the Port of Mobile. And although the state moved its capital to Tuscaloosa in 1826, Cahaba continued to grow into a thriving, wealthy river town. A rail line built in 1859 spurred further construction most notably uh, brick mansions and commercial buildings. By 1860, almost 2,000 people lived there. Dallas County, which also includes nearby Selma, Alabama, was the fourth wealthiest uh, county per capita in the U.S. 
And as you drive through Alabama, especially on the back roads, you can see a lot of generally abandoned um, antebellum homes sitting back up in uh, under the trees. But the antebellum, antebellum splendor was spoiled by the Civil War. Confederate government seized the town's railroad and removed the iron tracks to extend a different line nearby. The old railroad warehouse was converted into a prison and held 3,000 lice-infested Union prisoners of war. In 1865, a flood submerged the town, and a year later, the seat of Dallas County was permanently moved to Selma. And the people and the businesses, of course, followed the move. For a short time, Cahaba attracted emancipated African Americans who used the abandoned courthouse for political meetings, but unfortunately, that new community didn't stay. By 1870, the population had diminished to 300, and by the turn of the century, most of the Cahaba's buildings had been torn down, burned down, or decaying back into nature. Few structures survived past 1930, but there are remnants of the old street plan. Several wells and the ruins of brick commercial buildings in the states, including columns from one of the town's mansions. Now known as Old Cahaba Archaeological Park, the site includes two cemeteries, a two-story residence that uh, housed enslaved servants, and a reconstructed uh, carpenter Gothic church. It was built in uh, Cahaba in 1854 and 24 years later, dismantled and moved 15 miles west of the town of Martin Station. Well, in 2008, that church was moved again back to Cahaba. Well, the town is home to at least one ghost story. The spirit of Confederate Colonel C.G. Peggy, who's a native of Cahaba, said to have returned to town in advance of the news of his death in battle. A couple out for walk one night saw a glowing floating orb in the area of the colonel's garden. People still visit Cahaba today in hopes of catching uh, Peggy's uh, ghost. And I've heard a number of stories that a lot of folks have, in fact, seen him. Well, in Alaska, we've got Kennecott. Well known for the Kennecott mines that are now under the control of the National Park Service, which is following what they call a light-touch approach to the site, preserving some things while allowing others to continue their slow slide into oblivion. You know, it was in the summer of 1900, two prospectors exploring the eastern edge of Kennecott Glacier happened upon a green cliffs of uh, exposed copper on a mountainside about 100 miles inland from the port town of Valdez. In the words of one of the men, it looked like a green sheep pasture in Ireland when the sun's shining at its best. Well, that discovery turned out to be one of the richest deposits of copper ore ever found. Within a few years, the Alaska Copper and Coal Company was building a concentration mill. That's a process the, where they process the ore and extract the copper in the developing town at the base of the glacier. The uh, Copper River and Northwestern Railway wouldn't even reach that site till 1911, so in order to begin operation, the company used horses and sled dogs to haul in equipment over the mountains, including an entire steamship piece by piece. Well, in need of more money, Alaska Copper and Coal brought in New York business titan, uh, titans uh, Daniel Guggenheim and J.P. Morgan, and then reorganized as the Kennecott Mining Company, which took its name from the glacier. 
The mines continued to expand to the 1920s, and each site had its own self-sufficient camp with buildings for operations, uh, operating the mine, and housing workers. Below them, the mill towns grew into something more permanent. The largest structure in Kennecott was the 14-story concentration mill. Residential areas made up of bunkhouses and individual cottages for mill workers and families developed on the edge of town. Most buildings had indoor plumbing and steam heat. And, of course, there were churches and a school and a hospital. At Kennecott's height, about 600 men worked in the mines in the mill town. But all things come to an end, and the discovery of vast copper deposits in Chile, combined with the depletion of ore and economic turmoil caused by the Depression, dealt a death blow to Kennecott. Railroad ceased operating in 1938, and the mine closed shortly after that. Everybody left town, and the company salvaged little from the site. Today, Kennecott is empty, dominated by the dilapidated red buildings of the mill town. Most prominent among these is the old concentration mill, which rises above the trees and looms over the landscape before descending the hillside in a ramshackle stair-step fashion and ending in a row of buildings that includes a, a power plant and a railroad depot. Many who is a beautiful, haunting view. And you always know there's somebody standing at some of those empty windows watching you. Well, let's go back to Montana. The ghost town of Bannock. Now, about 40 structures remain standing in Bannock. Several constructed from logs, including the Masonic Lodge, and which doubled as a schoolhouse. The town was designated a state park in 1954 by the Montana Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Well... Bannock came about because of the Montana gold rush that began in July of 1862. And word spread about a big strike made along the banks of the Grasshopper Creek. Almost overnight, the mining town of Bannock was born. In a year, more than 3,000 people had moved into the area. Stores opened, as did dance halls, saloons, stables, meat markets, and hotels. Even a bowling alley and a brewery uh, existed in, in Bannock. 1864, the town became the first capital of the new Montana Territory, though its reign was somewhat brief. The capital was moved about 50 miles east of Virginia City a year later. Among the first to arrive in Bannock was Henry Plummer, described as a complicated man with a checkered past. In 1856, he was elected marshal in Nevada City, California. Also killed a man in what appeared to be an argument with that man's wife. He was eventually convicted of second-degree murder and spent six months in, 19, in 1859 in the prison at San Quentin before being discharged because he was said to be suffering from tuberculosis. Returned to Nevada City, but then fled after killing another man in a brothel and eventually made his way to Bannock. He is well-liked in the mining town was elevated to sheriff in 1863. But within months of Plummer's election, though, the number of robberies and murders along the roads of Alder Gulch, uh, that's the site of the Virginia City fine, had increased significantly, especially on the road between Virginia City and Bannock. Well, to deal with the problem, a vigilante committee was formed by the citizens of Bannock and Virginia City, and the Montana vigilantes began hunting down the gang of road agents. Well, a number of witnesses eventually identified Plummer as a member of the gang. And the testimony of captured bandits soon uh, identified him as the leader of the road agents. 
So he was captured and hung in January 1864. Well, Bannock's demise had already begun by that time, although death didn't come quickly. His gold became scarcer, and uh, people began to leave town, but uh, new mining technologies kept the place hanging on well into the 20th century. It became a ghost town after the post office closed down in 1938. Sixteen years later, it was designated a state park, at which point the process of preservation and restoration began. Today, there are 40 structures, some made of lumber and logs and... Some made of brick still standing in the town. And Bannock has become known as a hub of paranormal activity, and reports have included the sounds of crying children in a house where the town's younger citizens were quarantined due to illness. And there's the brick hotel Mead building, is also said to host the demon. And uh, the town also holds an annual ghost walk in October. So if you planned on going, you've just missed the tour. Well... Not to be left out, we've got Terlinga in the state of Texas. It's interesting, a church sits among the remnants of Terlinga. The town was deserted after mining operations ceased in the 1940s and today serves as a tourist attraction as well as the site of an international chili cook-off that draws more than uh, 10,000 people every November. And that'll be coming up shortly, I think. You know, it's situated in the Chihuahuan Desert at the edge of the Big Bend National Park, about 10 miles north of Santa Elena, Santa Elena Canyon in the Rio Grande in southwest Texas. Terlingo's remote and rugged, sitting atop hired scrabble sunblake soil dotted by scrubby shrubs and low-slung uh, mesquite trees. You know, Quicksilver was discovered in that area in the 1880s, and several mining complexes uh, began operating. Unlike the gold rush meccas of the American West that seemed to spring up overnight, the growth of Terlingo was more gradual. Population swelled over the next 25 years or so from several hundred to a thousand. And at its height during World War One, the town had about 2,000 residents, which in the ghost towns is considered um, a lot of folks. Been three different Tolingas on the southern tip of one of Texas' least populated counties. The original was a Mexican village on Tolinga Creek, which was three miles north of the Rio Grande. When mining operations began about 10 miles to the north, Marfa and Mariposa Camp became known as Terlinga. When it closed in May of 1910, the Terlinga Post Office moved 10 miles to the east to the Chisos Mining Company Camp. Founded in 1903 by Chicago industrialist Howard Perry, the uh, Chisos became one of the country's leading producers of Quicksilver over the next 30 years. On the outbreak of World War I, Chisos, the miners, discovered an especially rich vein of cinnabar ore. And as the military demand for mercury increased, the company's profits grew, and so did Teringa. town boasted a company-owned commissary, the hotel, a school, a company doctor, telephone service, and something that was rather rare was a reliable water supply. Well, Perry even built a mansion for himself, a nine-bedroom Morris estate on top of a hill. No production at Perry's mine began to decline during the 30s, and October 1st, 1942, the Shitsos Mining Company filed for bankruptcy. And by the end of World War II, all mining operations had ceased, and people left the area. Tolinga became a ghost town. Today, tourism is the primary industry in Tolinga, where visitors come to the area to go to Big Bend National Park or to hike in the Shitsos Mountains. The town scattered 
with the ruins of a church and mining structures, no hotel, and let's not forget Perry's Mansion. Also a miner's graveyard with simple stonework, wooden crosses, and tin can funeral wreaths. Because of soil so rocky, most bodies were buried under a rounded pile of stones rather than underground. You know, quite often uh, they took the easy way out. Well, let's go to the well-known ghost town of Bodie, California. Bodie has more than 170 remaining structures, and today they're kept in a state of arrested decay. state of California repairs roofs and foundations and windows and interior framing, but does as little as possible to the building's exteriors. Well, Bodie was founded in 1859 after two prospectors, Waterman Bodie and Black Taylor, discovered a small amount of gold in the hills north of Mono Lake, about 180 miles east of San Francisco. It was named after Bodie, but the spelling was changed to avoid mispronunciation. About 16 years later, a mine cave in revealed a rich strike of gold ore, and the rush was on, transforming Bodie from a sleepy mining camp into a boom town. Late 1870s, early 1880s, the population of Bodie swelled to nearly 10,000, and the town boasted more than 60 saloons and dance halls. Well, there's a red light district on Bonanza Street. Also had a Chinatown, complete with general stores and homes and boarding houses and a restaurant and a Taoist temple. At the town's peak, it was said several hundred Chinese lived in Bodie. But as with all gold booms, mining returns uh, soon began to diminish and so did Bodie's population. And in 1892, a fire burned a lot of the homes and businesses. Forty years later, another destroyed nearly 90% of the town. Post office left in 1942. In the 1950 census, Bodie officially had zero residents. The town was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1961 and became a California State Park in 1962. Well, not to be left out, we have an entry from Florida. Bullowville. And all that remains today of the Coquina ruins of the sugar mill, a few wells, the spring house, and the crumbling foundation of Bulo's mansion, and quarters that house enslaved servants. And the fields once used to grow crops have been taken over by the forest. Well, as you might guess, Bulo'ville was once a thriving sugar plantation. Established in 1821 along a tunnel creek on what's now the northeast coast of the state by Charles Willem Billow, a wealthy merchant from Charleston, South Carolina. Using the labor of enslaved servants, he cleared 2,200 acres and planted sugar cane, cotton, rice, and indigo. When he died at the age of 44 in 1823, ownership of the plantation transfers to a teenage son, John Billow, under whom it began to prosper. John built a sugar mill, a spring house, and a two-story mansion called Bulloville. He would travel on the Halifax River in a fishing boat that carried guns and nets and tents and cooks. Seminole Indians would come to his plantation to trade. Well, he had close relations with the Native Americans in the area, but it became a problem in December 1835 with the outbreak of the Second Seminole War. Angry over the government's policy, of forcible Indian removal, the Seminoles destroyed 16 plantations along the St. John's and Halifax Rivers. Troops under the command of Major Benjamin Putnam was sent from St. Augustine to protect the remaining plantations, but Bulo rejected their help. 
and Putnam and his soldiers entered Bulowville. Bulow fired a four-pound cannon at him. Put, uh, Putnam held Bulow under guard in his own home until January 23, 1836, when the troops, along with Bulow himself, retreated to St. Augustine in the face of increasingly hostile Native American attacks. And the Seminoles burned Bulowville to the ground. Bulow never returned. He died in Paris at uh, the age of 27. Okay, from the state of Florida, let's go north to Utah and the ghost town of Frisco. Now, Frisco was once a wildly profitable mining town. It's now but a shadow of its former glory. All that's left of the ghost town today are a few dilapidated buildings, remnants of mine equipment, and the beehive-shaped kills, which used to help uh, smelt the silver. Okay, Frisco, Utah. In September 1875, two prospectors found silver ore in a remote, desolate area in the western Utah Territory. And within a year, the Frisco camp had sprouted up near the Horn Silver Mine, which by the end of the decade is one of the richest in the world. Utah Southern Railroad ran a line to Frisco in 1880, and the population boomed to nearly 6,000 people. It was the commercial center of the region. Also one of the most lawless mining camps in the West. More than a dozen saloons, an alarmingly high murder rate, up to one or two a day, according to some sources. But there was a cave-in at the Horn Mine in February 12, 1885, which shook the ground in Milford, 17 miles to the east, and it also doomed Frisco. The mine restarted operations on a limited scale in less than a year, but it was never the same. Diminishing returns from the Horn coincided with Frisco's declining population. By 1900, only 500 people were left. 1928, when Frisco lost its post office, the place was mostly abandoned. Today, all that remains of Frisco are a few ramshackle buildings, some deserted mine equipment and structures, a cemetery, and the ruins of five beehive-shaped stone charcoal kills, which were used to make fuel for the, the mine smelter. You know, it's interesting to think what would have happened had there not been a cave-in. Well, from ghost towns, let's talk about some uh, unusual paranormal places. You know, the, the the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Ohio, ceased operations in 1990, and today brands itself as one of the most haunted prisons in the U.S. It may look familiar to moviegoers. It was used as a location for the 1994 film, The Shawshank Redemption. Another interesting um, haunted prison is um, Alcatraz. Apparently, Al Capone still practices his banjo. He was in the, the prison band. Well, one of my favorite places in New Orleans is St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. The spirit of Marie Laveau isn't the only one said to be haunting that cemetery. Visitors also reported seeing the ghost of a sailor who wanders among the tombs, and another male apparition has been seen taking flowers from other grave sites. You know, it's uh, the oldest cemetery in New Orleans. 
dates back to 1789, when because of concerns about the spread of disease, it was established outside the city's fortifications. Barrels were initially below ground, but the constant threat of flooding and notoriously high water table prompted the local government to stipulate in 1803 that all interments had to be above ground. Among the maze-like cemeteries, defining structures are its oven vaults, which are walls of graves stacked one on top of the other, like drawers in a filing cabinet. Lower portion of the mausoleum's bottom rows are no longer visible because New Orleans is slowly sinking. Harry actually sits a few feet below sea level. Among the notable graves in St. Louis Cemetery, number one of the tombs of both the first mayor of New Orleans as well as the City's first African-American mayor, Ernest Morial. Another crypt safeguards the remains of Homer Plessy, who was the plaintiff in the milestone 1896 Supreme Court decision and upheld the constitutionality of segregation based on the principle of separate but equal. And there's also a famous grave that is so far still unoccupied. 2010, actor Nicholas Cage, then 46, bought a white nine-foot pyramid in the cemetery for his future resting place. It's blank, it's featureless, save for the Latin inscription, Omnia Ab Uno, meaning everything from one. The enigmatic uh, mausoleum has become a popular stop on tours of the graveyard. But maybe the most famous permanent resident of St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 is Marie, Marie Laveau. When she died at the age of 80 in 1881, was reputed to be the voodoo queen of New Orleans. Free woman of color, she was a hairdresser and a nurse who was renowned not only for her wisdom but for her skill at treating physical ailments with herbal remedies. Reverential memorial to her in her hometown Times Picayune newspaper made no mention of voodoo, though there is a plaque on her tomb that touts her connections to black magic and the occult. According to legend, her ghost to grant wishes made by believers who, in violation of the law, mark her tomb with three X's. Visitors reported all manner of supernatural experiences there, including mysterious touches and sudden illnesses and voices coming from inside the tomb. You know, it's interesting, her tomb was actually the property of a wealthy man she was uh, said to be having relations with. He gave her the tomb. And there is all manner of money and credit cards and everything else you could imagine stuck in the cracks of that tomb. And when I was there, I asked one of the uh, tour guides. I said, where I live, that'd be gone five minutes after it's laid down. He said, nobody steals from Marie Laveau. Anybody who takes something winds up bringing it back because of all the bad luck they have. Well, let's go to Los Angeles. Hollywood Forever Cemetery. It has the tombs of philanthropist William A. Clark. Go further into the cemetery, the Abbey of the Palms mausoleum, said to be haunted by actor Clifford Webb's spirit. And the ghost of Virginia Rapp has often heard weeping at the edge of the lake near her grave. You know, it's an interesting place. This sprawling graveyard opened in 1899 as the Hollywood Cemetery. Originally covered 100 acres. But the association that owned it sold some of its land in 1916 to Peralta Studios. And a decade later, that property was purchased by uh, Paramount Studios, which uh, abuts the cemetery's south side. The park now sits on a manicured 62 acres. 
rechristened Hollywood Memorial Park Cemetery in the late 1930s. 1998, after nearly falling into bankruptcy and closing its gates, it was reborn under its current name. More than 80,000 souls buried on Hollywood Forever's green sculptured grounds, including some of the brightest stars of Tinseltown's golden age. Among the biggest names are directors Cecil B. DeMills and John Huston, actors Douglas Fairbanks, Judy Garland, Tyrone Power, Fay Ray, King Kong is not there, and Rudolph Valentino, whose 1926 funeral was disrupted by crowds rushing police lines trying to grab pieces of floral arrangements sent in tribute to the matinee idol. Other notable grave sites belonging to uh, two of the founding members of the Ramones, guitarist Johnny Ramone and bassist Didi Ramone, as well as mobster Buzz, Bugsy Siegel. Beneath a small marker by a man-made lake on the cemetery's east side lies the body of 25-year-old actress Virginia Rape, whose uh, death in 1921 in a hotel party in San Francisco led to manslaughter charges against popular comedic actor Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Now, the silent screen star was eventually acquitted in 1922, but uh, this did destroy his career, unfortunately. Well, Hollywood Forever Cemetery is reputed to be the most haunted place in Los Angeles, and many of the apparitions are the spirits of famous residents. The wall that separates the graveyard from Paramount Studio lot has been said to be frequented by the ghost of Valentino, who's been spotted walking back and forth along the barrier. Studio itself is well acquainted with the supernatural, so much so that it's been given the nickname Paranormal Paramount. People who work there say that the many of the hauntings of the studio have their origin in the cemetery next door. Well, and we have in Chicago the Iroquois Theater. Now, the building, what's known as the Iroquois Theater, is said to be haunted by the souls of patrons who died in a horrific fire that. Ravaged the interior in 1903. People walking down the alley where many fell to their deaths reported feeling hands on their shoulders or hearing their names being whispered. Now, it was December 30th, 1903. A, mul a malfunctioning spotlight started a fire on stage at Chicago's five-week-old Iroquois Theater. And as the flames spread, many in the crowd of 1,700 bolted for the exits. But unfortunately, the exits weren't marked and most were obscured by curtains. And patrons in the balcony were trapped by the metal accordion gates that had been locked to prevent people sneaking downstairs for better seats. Well, as the panic grew, somebody backstage opened a door to the outside and resulting backdrafts in a ball of flame into the theater. The explosion was powerful enough to blow open an exit door and people in the balcony found fire escapes, but the stairs weren't finished and... Uh, no ladders to the ground. Left the 120 people fell to their deaths in the alley below. And more than 600 died in just 30 minutes. The worst theater disaster in U.S. history. The Air Aquarium was replaced in 1926 by the Oriental Theater, which showed both movies and live acts. 1996, it became the exclusively alive theater, and 23 years later was renamed the Netherlander. Actors and crew members have reported seeing shadow figures moving around in the balcony, and people have seen apparitions on the back stairs dressed in old-fashioned clothes. Actress uh, Anna Gasteyer, who was in production of uh, Wicked at the Orient on 2005 and 2006, claimed to see the ghost of a mother and her two children at the end of a backstage hall. 
the question is when you run into something like that, what do you do? Well, from Chicago, we go to Western West Virginia, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. According to that building's current owners, the ghost of a handful of former patients still reside there, including a little girl named Lily who was born in the asylum and whose spirit reportedly often plays in one of the rooms. Well, West Virginia Hospital the, for the Insane was the original name of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Uh, it admitted its first patients in 1864. And this imposing Jacobean-style facility is one of the largest land, um, hand-cut stone masonry buildings in America. With its long, rambling wings and pastoral surroundings, it was a model institution of its time. When treatments for mental illness were becoming more humane. In western West Virginia, that's Weston, patients who a few years earlier might have been chained to the walls and crowded city jails were instead living in private rooms in a blue sandstone building on a bucolic campus. Well, the facility's name was changed in 1913 to Weston State Hospital, and over the years, its mission changed as well. Its focus became more on caring for the afflicted rather than rehabilitating them. Designed to accommodate 250 patients, it was holding more than 2,400 by the 1950s. When overcrowding was at its most severe, bed would be shared by several patients sleeping in shifts. Well, in 1994, the Western closed when the state moved patients to a more modern facility. The place stood empty for 14 years before it was purchased for $1.5 million and reopened in 2009 as a showcase attraction. Its current name is actually the original name given to it by the Virginia legislature in 1858. Well, of course you know that a city like Salem, Massachusetts has to have uh, some ghosts. It's got the Charter Street Cemetery. And there have been reports of voices and lights and southern drops in temperature at the cemetery believed to be the ghost of the accused witches condemned to death during the Salem witch trials. And photographs have also purportedly captured um, Hathorne's ghost near his grave. It's also known as the Old Burying Point. Charter Street's one of the oldest cemeteries in the country. It opened its gates in 1637, just seven years after the establishment of Boston King's Chapel Burying Ground. The earliest monument in the Burying Point, a simple slate headstone, belongs to, to Roddy Cromwell, who died in 1673. Now, prior to that, grave markers were made of wood, which decayed over time. Among the 700 monuments at Charter Street, which saw its last burial in 1894, are the remains of several significant historical figures. They include Richard Moore, an original pilgrim who came to America in 1620 at the age of six aboard the Mayflower, and Simon Bradstreet, the last governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Interesting historical note. One branch of my family financed the Mayflower. I don't think we ever got repaid. Also, several people buried in the cemetery who were just directly involved in the most infamous incident in the history of the town, Salem Witch Trials of 1692 and 1693. More than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft and were made to stand trial. 30 were found guilty, 19 of whom, 14 women and 5 men, were hung. John Hathorne, one of the proceedings' most influential judges, as well as a great-great-grandfather, Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, author of The Scarlet Letter, is buried at Charter Street. Another judge from the trials, Bartholomew um, Gedney, is also interred there. 
small gravestone marks the final resting place of Mary Corey, the second wife of local farmer Giles Corey. Mary died in 1684, eight years before Giles was charged with being a witch. He refused to plead guilty and was executed in a field in 1692 by a method known as pressing. During a pressing, uh, heavy stones are put on a plank of wood covering the body. Three days after Giles' death, his third wife, Martha, was hung for being a witch. None of the bodies of the executed and buried at Charter Street. They were instead cast into unmarked graves near the gallows where they were hung. It's believed their spirits still haunt the resting place of the man who condemned them to death. And certainly that uh, seemed appropriate, I think. And finally, the last one for today's show, the Ohio State Reformatory that I made reference to earlier in Mansfield, Ohio. The Ohio State Reformatory at Mansfield boasts a beautiful Romanesque exterior, but inside there's something far spookier. Visitors to the facility reported seeing shadow figures, hearing disembodied voices, and unexplained footsteps, and being grabbed when there's no one nearby to grab you. The world knows the Gothic exterior of this massive stone building with its rooftop spires and high-arcing windows from the classic 1994 film The Shawshank Redemption. That movie starred Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, which was shot there three years after the place closed its doors. Opened in 1896, it was intended for delinquent young men ages 14 to 28 who were first-time nonviolent offenders. But as the years wore on, it became less a reformatory and more a maximum security uh, prison. Still, the disease operations in 1990 due to overcrowding, inadequate, or outdated facilities. Notably, it had very tiny cells and inhumane conditions. The plan was to tear the structure down, but that was unworkable. Some walls were 25 feet tall and 6 feet thick at the base and up to a quarter of a mile long. Well, primarily thanks to the filming of the Shawshank, Reformatories become a tourist attraction that welcomes more than 120,000 visitors a year, allowing millions to become acquainted with the places ties to the paranormal. Some 150,000 inmates pass through that prison during its 94 years in operation, and the, uh, the ghosts of several still re- apparently roam the halls as done the spirit of a guard who jabs visitors with a nightstick. Voices and footsteps have been heard on the third floor of the administration building. Facility offers a host of paranormal tour options, including one for professional ghost hunters. Now, let me tell you, that's a a job you can really get your sink your teeth into. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow. But once again, you'll be listening to Ken Hodno and the Ken Hodno Show. Until then, have a truly great evening.